Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and mental health issues, including depression and suicidal thoughts that may be triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Parents often overcorrect from the mistakes of raising their first child with their younger children. If their oldest child turns out to be different from their expectations, it's not unreasonable for parents to adjust their parenting style for their younger children. Bernard and Paulette Brom had four children together. Their first to be born was Joe. Then three years later came David. And three years after that, the couple welcomed their first daughter, Diane. Two years after Diane was born, the couple had their final child, Richard. In the late 80s, the family of six lived in a rural area in Minnesota called Cascade Township, and this is located about 15 minutes north of downtown Rochester. Around this time, Rochester had a population of about 70,000. IBM has a fairly large campus in Rochester, and Bernard had actually worked at IBM since 1968. The Brom family purchased the home at 2244 67th Street North, which was on a quiet cul-de-sac in a very safe area with little to no crime. This was perfect for the family. You know, Bernard and Paulette could let the children play in the woods surrounding the home, and they really wouldn't have to worry about anything major happening to them besides like a scraped knee. The family was really active in their church, and they raised their children to follow the teachings of the Bible as well. It was really important for them, for their children to have these, you know, really Christian values and grow up in a very wholesome way. As Joe Brom, the oldest of the four children, got into his teen years, he started to become interested in the punk rock music scene. Like many teenagers, he was rebellious and his relationship with his parents sort of deteriorated. They really didn't approve of Joe's lifestyle He was wearing eyeliner and, you know, listening to this loud, what they thought was angry music. And they just really didn't think that this fit in with the wholesome picture of their family that they had always envisioned. So their relationship with Joe really suffered. Eventually, it got to the point where Joe moved out of the family home before he even turned 18. And he moved in with some family friends in Rochester. So he was still nearby. He still saw the family, but really did not get along with his parents at this point. Due to their disappointment with how their relationship with Joe had disintegrated, Bernard and Paulette started tightening the rules for the rest of their children. They started monitoring the music that they listened to, who they hung out with, all of their daily activities. You know, they really wanted to have more control in shaping their children. And they thought that by, you know, controlling their their lives even more, that they would be able to avoid what had happened with Joe with the rest of their children. 
So as David, the oldest of the Brahm children that still live at home, as he got older and became a teenager, he started taking after his older brother, Joe. Basically, following in Joe's footsteps, he started listening to punk rock music, and he even dyed his hair from a light brown to dark black. Because he was a teenager, he was likely seeing that punk rock music was something that his parents were really sensitive about and really did not approve of. And so because he's a teenager trying to rebel, that's something that he's really going to focus on um, and try to form his identity around just so he can try to break out of those bounds a little bit. So fearful that David was going to end up the same way that Joe did, Bernard attempted to really tighten the reins and regulate David's life even further. So instead of giving David the freedom to kind of explore who he was going to be as a human, the world was kind of tightened around David a little bit. But, you know, Bernard did this in a way to attempt to to help David. In his mind, he was trying to lead David into a wholesome path that would give him a better life. And so it wasn't done from a place where, you know, it was just control. This was a place of trying to help David and trying to set him on the right path. Bernard even attempted to build his relationship with David in other ways. He started running so that he could spend time together when David was running because David was really interested in that and went running fairly often. They even started working on fixing up an old car that David would be able to drive once he turned 16. But unfortunately, all of these attempts failed. By 1987, David Brom was dealing with more than the normal teenage angst. He attempted twice to take his own life, although he was never hospitalized for these attempts. So it's not totally clear if his parents knew about these and attempted to help him at all or if he hid them. By February of 1988, David was 16 years old and his depression was bubbling into rage towards his parents and how he perceived that they were oppressing and controlling his life. David vented to friends about his anger towards his parents and on several occasions, he even talked about wanting to kill them. But his friends basically just took this as normal teenage talk. Oh, I hate my parents. I want to kill them. Oh, I hate them. Not that that's something that's okay to say, but his friends thought that David was fairly level-headed, and they really never thought that these were serious threats on anybody's life. They really just thought that this was venting and didn't take it fully seriously. On the night of February 17th, Bernard caught David listening to a cassette that Bernard did not approve of. The two fought, and David was enraged once again by feeling like his life was being controlled by his father. He couldn't even listen to the music that he wanted to. He was steaming mad. The rest of the family went to sleep, but David stayed up, and he was so angry. He couldn't sleep. His anger was doubling. He just felt like he was exploding in anger. At around 3 a.m. that night, David made his decision. He grabbed an axe and he snuck into his parents' bedroom. David struck his father Bernard first, hitting him over and over with an axe in a fit of absolute rage. David's mother, Paulette, awoke immediately and she screamed at David to stop, but ultimately she decided it was better to take the two younger children and get out of the house before they could be harmed. Unfortunately, by the time Paulette was just in the hallway outside of the master bedroom, David caught up with her, and he began striking her with the axe as well. 
David's younger brother, who was just 11 years old, he had woken up from all the noises of the attack, and he was terrified. He laid under his covers in his bed, clutching his blanket in the fetal position. He was in this position when David mercilessly attacked and killed him. David's sister, 13-year-old Diane, had also heard the noises, and she got out of bed to find her mother dead and bleeding in the hallway outside of the master bedroom. She was standing over her mother when David attacked her with the axe, and she fell and died right next to her mother. David had finished his massacre in just a few minutes. His parents and two younger siblings were dead, and he was alone in the house. The next day, David met up with a friend and skipped school. He admitted to this friend that he had killed his entire family. Now, we don't know a ton about this friend or who they were. They were a minor at the time, and they've remained completely anonymous. But, but rumors of what David had done started to spread among all of the students at the high school, and they ultimately were overheard by school staff. The staff decided to call the police just to do a wellness check they didn't necessarily believe the rumors either. You know, it's, it's a pretty unbelievable thing to hear that a student has just killed his whole family. Um, but they decided, let's call the police, let's have them do a wellness check on the home and just make sure that everything is okay. Officers Kevin Torgerson and Mike Braley responded to the call. And once they got to the Brom house, they actually found the front door to be unlocked, which wasn't completely strange. You know, this is the late 80s in a very rural area where there's almost no crime. So people didn't always lock their doors, but they didn't get a response when they knocked on the door and called for the family, even though the family's cars were there. So they decided to go ahead and open the door because they had heard these awful rumors and if they were true, then the family would be inside and they needed to know. So the officers entered the home and they made their way upstairs and that's where they discovered the bloody bodies of Bernard, Paulette, Richard, and Diane. Officer Torgerson later stated, quote, I got up to nearly the top step then enough to where I could do a couple of quick sneak peeks to the right and to the left. Of course, I saw the feet that would turn out to be the two females. Their bodies were laying towards the left, so I went that way first. I could see that they were obviously deceased. The blood was dried and everything. The injuries were just horrendous. Most of the injuries were about their arms, face, and neck areas and heads." End quote. A widespread manhunt for David Brahms started right away, and although there had been several sightings of David, police seemed to always be one step behind him. Someone would call in a sighting, the police would respond, and David will have just left. Finally, the next morning, there was a report of David at the local post office. Officers responded, and they were able to arrest David Brahm without incident. He didn't try to run away. He didn't try to fight. He knew that he was going to be arrested for what he did. So he went pretty peacefully with these officers. Once they put David in the back of the police car to drive him to the police department, he sat there in silence. He didn't say a word. Before they could go to court, it had to be determined if 16-year-old David would be tried as an adult for these crimes. Although the original judge on the case determined that David should be tried as a juvenile, 
This ruling was ultimately overturned by the Minnesota State Supreme Court, and David was to be tried as an adult. Once that was determined, the court also had to determine if mental illness played a big enough role in the crime for David not to be held responsible for the murders. So this is known as the Minotten Rule, and it basically says that if a criminal defendant doesn't know the nature of their act or that what they did was morally wrong, then they can't be held responsible for that crime. So you can't be um, so mentally ill that you don't know what you're doing or you don't know that what you're doing is wrong. If you are that mentally ill, then you cannot be held criminally responsible for that. You know, you can be put into a mental health facility, but you can't be put into prison necessarily. On October 16, 1989, after two and a half days of deliberation, a jury found David Brom guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences and one concurrent life sentence, one for each of the family members that he butchered. David Brom has remained in custody of the Minnesota Department of Corrections, and he will never be eligible for parole. Since the murders, David Brom has remained relatively silent on his motives and the crimes that he committed. So it does lead us to speculate a little bit about why he did it. Was it just that he felt that he was being controlled by his parents? Did he have a mental break? We will never know for sure um, because David has remained very silent about that. He's refused interviews from local and national press. He's really made no effort to give an excuse for his actions. He's been described as polite, and he even holds the door open for his jailers. The home at 2244 67th Street Northwest is still standing today. As of 2017, one of the neighbors of the Brahm family still lives in the cul-de-sac, and he spoke to YouTube blogger Landon Kalfi about David, recalling what a polite boy he was and how David had been a great babysitter for the neighbor's family. It's clear that the memory of what happened over 30 years ago is still fresh to those who knew the Brahms, and they're still torn by the dichotomy of the polite young boy who snapped and butchered his family with an axe. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Rochester Axe Murders. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, you are not alone. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255 and is available 24-7. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And leave a rating or a review to let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. In between episodes, you can visit our website, www.morbidtourism.com, to learn about more morbid locations. You can also follow us on Instagram, at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the Duluth News Tribune, and the YouTube channel, Landom C Goes There. <laughs>